My name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here. If you're visiting with us today, thank you so much uh, for choosing to worship with us today. As Jasper said, we know we're not the greatest church or the only church in town, and so you had a bunch of options when you woke up this morning, and you chose us, and we're honored and humbled uh, by that fact. Amen? So we pray that you enjoy yourself today. Uh, couple of, One thing, uh, you can go ahead and start turning to Luke chapter 15. You're going to be there. You can bookmark that. We'll be there uh, all morning, to this morning, and then the next three weeks also. So uh, you can just keep that handy, read it through the week. I encourage that. I uh, want to say thank you on behalf of Brother Tommy Thompson. Uh, he and his wife experienced a death in the family this week, and you guys uh, went over and above, many of you, uh, reaching out to them, pouring out your love on them, sending them prayer support as well as other support. And so they wanted me to say thank you on their behalf. So uh, thank you guys. Really, really appreciate that. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit. If you weren't here last week, just something to kind of mention to you. We made a little bit longer announcement last week than I'll have time to today. So if you have questions, come see me. Uh, but last week we announced that uh, after about a year-long search for a piece of property or a building or uh, what have you, that the Lord has uh, blessed us with an offer to purchase the property that we're already in. So we were renting this property. Uh, it was not for sale a year, for, a year ago. And as we began to pursue the Lord, we assembled a building team. We assembled a... a um, and then the deacons and elders jumped in on that and kind of helped out. And uh, through much prayer, much consideration, we have placed an offer on this building of $100,000, which comes with property, approximately five acres. That was accepted, so it is under contract now through the bank and hope to close on it within the next 30, 45 days or so. So praise God for that. Amen. Y'all give the Lord a hand. Um, super grateful for that. Uh, like I said, there's, there's other details that I was able to share last week, and if you have questions, please feel free to come to me, go see Alan, go see Jasper, uh, go see any of the deacons, anybody, all right? But many of these guys and gals were on, in on this team and in on this effort, and so uh, thank you guys for that. Well, uh, kind of the plan for that, I'll just throw this out because I think this is important to keep communicating, is at $100,000, we will be able to put down at least $20,000 and then have some money to make some small repairs and finish out some things. Uh, but the hope or the plan would be, the kind of the goal we're laying out there is to get this paid off within a couple of years uh, and then add on after that. So we didn't want to do that all as one project because that's just too much money. I mean, we want to be wise with what we're doing. And so uh, we'd like to pay off that 80000 as quick as possible and then start some kind of a building project here. Amen? Amen. So uh, anyway, ask for your prayers in that, and uh, thank you. All right, so last week we started this new series called Prodigal Grace. Now, uh, Prodigal Grace is an in-depth look at the story that most of us know as the prodigal son. Now, last week we uh, set out and just kind of redefined prodigal. Most of us think prodigal, we immediately think wayward. In fact, I was reading an article uh, just yesterday about uh, Theo Epstein, who is the uh, Cubs general manager, about how he is back in Boston. This is really nerdy stuff, but he's back in Boston this week for a series against the Red Sox. Theo Epstein was the guy who assembled the team that led the Red Sox to break their curse. I mean, you know, the Cubs just broke their curse this past year, right? So he's, he's a brainiac when it comes to baseball. But the article from ESPN says, 
the prodigal son returns. And so it was this idea of this wayward son being gone. And I think that's just, that's just an illustration of, that's kind of the definition we have in our minds. But if you look up the definition of prodigal, uh, it doesn't actually mean wayward. It means spendthrift. It means extravagant. It means uh, wasteful almost. And so uh, there's a guy named Tim Keller who wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and he's talking about this exact story, and it's kind of the inspiration for this series. We wanted to take a look into the area that we live in and, and figure out how people think and, and how to approach them with the gospel. Amen? And so uh, this idea of the older brother is a huge deal here in the Magnolia. It's a big deal in the Bible Belt. I'll get to that here in a moment. Uh, but what we see in Keller's book and what he pointed out that just kind of blew my mind uh, was this definition of prodigal and that it means extravagant. It's actually not the son. The son was extravagant, right? He's wasteful. He goes out and spends all that the father had given him. Uh, but it's God who is actually prodigal. He's prodigal with his grace, as we've uh, stated it here in this series. He's, he's almost reckless in the way that he spends his grace on us. Amen? And we're so grateful for that. And so that's kind of what this series is diving into, but it's also going to be a look at, um, at uh, where older brothers rest, where those younger brothers rest. And so uh, Keller states this about the story. He says, it's as much about the older brother as it is the younger brother and about the father as it is the sons. And so all three of these characters in the story play a really huge part in the story that Jesus is telling. So uh, again, prodigal grace is intended to capture just this big uh, theme, this point that Jesus is trying to make to the people, his, the, these people that he's speaking to. Uh, that God is nothing if not prodigal towards people in showing them grace. Amen? And for this, we are grateful. So as we get ready to dive into that, let me pray for our time together. Lord, we come before you and we praise you, uh, God, for this time that we have together this morning, for this opportunity we have to uh, hear your word spoke, but to also read your word. And uh, Lord, now we ask that the Holy Spirit would grant us the understanding. Uh, my words will only go so far. My preparation will only go so far. We ask that your Holy Spirit do the changing, that he be the one who ignites our hearts to further uh, desire you. And uh, Lord, it's with this attitude that we come before your word this morning. Amen. Amen. So uh, one of the, I, I hinted at a second ago, but one of the big reasons we set out to do a series like this, again, is because of this Bible Belt uh, Christianity that so much of us deal with. Now, here's what I mean by that. Most of us grew up uh, in church, or at least in and out of church. We had families that went to church. We had grandparents that went to church. It was expected of us that we would go to church. And a lot of the, the behavior that we saw was is that as long as you were going to church, you could almost do whatever you wanted during the week, or there was this idea that that was okay because we're checking this off of our moral checklist. We're going to go to church. We're going to try to say the right things. We'll even act the right way in public, but in private, our lives may be in shambles. They may be totally messed up, totally broken. Uh, but as long as you're going to church and doing those things, nobody was ever going to ask you any questions, right? You show up to church. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Good, right? And then you sit down in your pew and you would go home after the final amen. And that was just kind of the model. There wasn't this idea of community. I'm not saying that it didn't exist at all. I'm just saying that the churches I grew up in, it wasn't pressed into a whole lot. And so you end up with people who are living moral lives without really being spiritual at all, 
without really desiring God at all. They're living this moral lifestyle because it's what's expected. It's the idea that was out there. And so uh, salvation equaled moralism. Salvation equaled good behavior. Salvation equals growing up in the South. Salvation equals taking a stance against certain things and not against certain things. Salvation equals uh, being from uh, a certain state or a certain country, right? I, I had a preacher one time when I was growing up, he used to tell the story about how he approached a man in downtown. Some of you will know this because you were at the church, but he approached a man downtown here and was just asking him about God and uh, if he was a Christian. He said, am I a Christian? Well, I'm American by God, right? And that's, uh, that's kind of the idea is that if you're American, you're saved, right? If you grew up in the South, you're saved. If you like guns, you're saved. If you vote Republican, you must be a Christian. Like this, this is just the ideas that we see. And then if you have anything against those ideas, then you are not in the in crowd anymore, right? You're, you're somehow on the outside of that. You don't fit in anymore. You don't match what, uh, what the standard has been set at. And so I say all that to say this, the world is a funny place, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's just a really funny place. And so what I mean by that is, uh, and don't get me wrong, because I don't want you to hear me saying, I wish we could go back to the good old days, because I didn't live in the good old days, right? Uh, But I've read my Bible and history books enough to know that there's no such thing as the good old days, right? History shows that we've always been jacked up, that we've always been immoral, that we've always been given over to our selfish desires and our fleshly desires. So there's just not a such thing as the good old days. I I admit things may have been better at times or seemed better at times, but I just think uh, progressively things just are always getting worse. People are always people, amen? That We're just always doing what our hearts desire. And so uh, I, I think, though, that the Internet and that social media has amplified this a bit. And, and so what I mean is, is you see, uh, you see these moralistic behaviors and then you see these self-discovery behaviors really clashing. You see older brothers clashing with younger brothers all the time. And what I mean by that is the, pro- the story of the prodigal son here. And so uh, just this week, there were some, some friends of mine on social media who shared this video by uh, Bill Nye. And I don't know if you saw this, but he's using ice cream to explain sexuality. Now, some of you may have saw this. It's really quite ridiculous. But what he, the point he's trying to make is that not everyone is vanilla ice cream. Not, not everyone desires what is natural and historical to desire within their sexuality. And so there's all these other flavors. So that must mean there's all these other sexualities. It's a really unscientific way to make a scientific point, right? Uh, and so the video is really, that's all I'll say about it. The video is is quite disturbing on different levels. One is that what happened to the Bill Nye when I was a kid, right? The, the guy you used to watch on during Saturday morning cartoons, he'd pop in and do like a little three-minute science project or experiment, and then he'd, he'd, he'd go away, right? Uh, the, the other thing is, when did we reach a place in society where we totally ignore fact just to pursue what we want to pursue, right? Just, just to do what we want to do. And so, um, the Bible's clear that in the last days, this will be the way we act. Now, again, I'm not saying that we're in the last days right now. I think we've been in the last days since Jesus ascended to heaven. Amen. I, I just, I, I view it that way. That's my view. Uh, anyway, and so I think, though, that 
if you're going to consider something like that, you should think scientifically. You should use historical facts. You should use what's natural. And then you should not ever ignore reproduction, right? I think that's one of the biggest parts of sexuality, right? That's the whole purpose of this. And so uh, for scientists to ignore those things is, is really irrelevant in my mind. But I say all that to say this. As I'm thinking through those things, I'm, I'm reading this or I'm seeing these things, I begin to think, man, what, what if I engage this guy right now, right here on social media? What if I just asked a few questions, probed a little, uh, and then I just immediately thought, uh, one, that, that fear of being labeled a bigot kind of creeps in, right? Uh, of, of being labeled uh, moralistic or holier than thou kind of creeps in. You're like, man, I don't really want that to be the case. And then, and then reason sets in. You're like, well, social media is not really the best place to do that anyway, right? You should invite the guy over for dinner maybe and talk about it in uh, a sense like that. And so, um, but you begin to see that there are two sides, right? There's this self-discovery side, and then there's this moralistic side. And these two sides are always clashing. And so you quickly learn that if you're on the moralistic side, you must be intolerant and you must be a bigot. It just must be who you are, right? If you're on the self-discovery side and you meet somebody like that, those are the words that will immediately come flying out of your mouth. Right? This is just the nature of the world we live in. And so both sides are constantly screaming, our way is the right way. If you're not for us, then you must be against us, right? And there is how much unity in that? Zero. Right? There's no unified conversations. I don't even watch the news anymore because I can't stand to watch people sit and yell at each other about a topic that is so controversial. Like, why in the world would we do this? And I think that when they interview uh, guys who would represent Christianity well, I think they'll only pick and choose what they want to pick and choose to, to show us, right? To, to print because the, they can twist anything that's said that's, that's correct and make it not correct, make it bigoted, make it sound arrogant, and all of those things. So to me, it's just better to engage those conversations with people you know, right? Like, like let's not even try to do those other things. Let's not even try to have these conversations on Facebook or other places, amen? Just, let's have conversations in person, um, because what happens is we get so divided that we think now there must be no other way to live. You're either in the self-discovery mode or you're in the moralistic mode. And so it's this battle to the death between the immoral and the moral person of society. And so what is each side looking for? What does each side want? I think each side is looking for fulfillment. For the person on the self-discovery path, they will be most fulfilled and not withholding anything that their heart desires from themselves. Right? They just want to go and get it. If that means I self-identify as something else today, then I want to go and have that. If that means that I'm going to go totally against Christian values and moral behaviors, then I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to set myself up. That's going to be my heel to die on. And then for the moralistic person, it's like all of that is completely stupid, and so let's just stick to our rigid moralistic ideas without showing any kind of compassion, any kind of care for the person who's in the self-discovery mode. And I'm going to be fulfilled because I'm going to follow the letter of the law to a T, right? And so each side is looking for fulfillment. Now, no doubt you have experienced this divide just like I have. And if I asked you today to identify yourself, kind of where you stand, most of you would say, 
probably, I assume anyway, moral conformity, right? That that's the answer to the problems we face today. We need more law. We need more, uh, con- we need more uh, morals. We need people to conform to these ideals and to really walk in these things, to believe these things. And, and I would say that that's not entirely wrong. And so it kind of looks like a no-brainer, right? And, and so I think the problem that we have today is that as a whole, we've determined, though, that there's only two ways to live. Right, A life of self-discovery or a life of moral conformity. And the solution then uh, to that, I believe, is this. I think this is the only possible solution, actually. So if you're asking, are there more than one solution? I don't think so. I think right here is the only possible solution. It's to see and understand what Jesus is saying to us in this parable. That, that what he's saying is this, that both approaches to life, to fulfillment, are wrong. They're both wrong. And there's a radical alternative. And I think we have to understand this. I think we have to get this in here. Otherwise, we're going to wind up in self-discovery or moralism. We're going to land in one of the two ditches every time. And, and so let me read this story just to kind of refresh you again. Uh, don't forget that Jesus' audience here was the Pharisees, certainly. But tax collectors and sinners had gathered And the Pharisees had gathered to criticize Jesus for even spending time with these people. And so Jesus, knowing all things, knows their heart, hears their grumbling, and he begins to tell parables addressing the Pharisees. Like he says some things that the tax collectors and sinners would have cheered about, right? But then he says some things that would have baffled both groups. And that's the things that we're trying to key in on with this series. So let me read this to you. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he kind of rehearses this. He thinks about what he's going to say. And then verse 20 says, And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate so the younger son goes and it's like man i just want to be a servant right but immediately when the father sees him he runs to him falls on him kisses him embraces him he's so grateful to see his younger son again He thought he may be dead. He didn't know where he was. You know, this isn't isn't the era of Facebook. He's not following him on Facebook, seeing what kind of immoral stuff he's doing, right? He's literally wondering every day, is my son even alive? Is he even around for me to, to entreat at all, to talk to? 
right? I mean, he, he would have been longing for his son. And we don't know exactly how long he was gone. So anyway, when he's coming back, the father runs to him and treats him, kisses him, and, and the son begins to, to, to lay out this uh, plan that he had. Let me just become one of your servants. And the father just totally ignores it. And you can see in the father's heart, there was never this idea that the son would ever have to be a servant to try to repay all that he had spent. The idea was always that the son would become a son again. Amen? That, that he had never left that, that he was being invited back into the family. Bring him the best robe. That would have been the father's robe. Put it on him. Cover his nakedness. Amen? And so we see that. We see the celebration begin to start. And then we have verse 25. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, which is the same as saying, Look, you, right? These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, so it's not even his younger brother now, when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And if you look at the next verse, there is no next verse. There's this cliffhanger that we were left with last week. And so as we saw last week, the younger brother is this depiction of sin that anyone could recognize, right? He's totally out of control. Anyone who lives this sort of life would have been cut off from God. And all the hearers, even the sinners and tax collectors, sitting there listening to Jesus' words would have agreed that the son should have not been allowed back in. Like according to the customs, according to the traditions, he should have worked as a servant, trying to repay, probably over the course of the rest of his life, everything that he had taken and spent. And then we see that the older brother is under control and obedient to his father, which represents God. So we have two sons. We have one that is bad and one that is good according to traditional standards, yet both are alienated from the father. He has to go out to both of them, invite both of them into this party, into this feast. And so there are two lost brothers in the story, not just one. This is the point we made last week. And so Jesus leaves the story on a cliffhanger. The immoral younger brother is enjoying the feast, enjoying the party, while the older, uh, moral young, older brother is outside, outside this feast, not willing to go in. And this is a complete reversal of what the Pharisees would have been taught their entire lives and what they would have been teaching others. This is completely against what they would have thought should have been right, not to mention what sounds right to us, right? And so why doesn't he go in? Why doesn't the, young, uh, the older brother go into the party? I think he gives us the answer when he says, because I never disobeyed you. I've never disobeyed you. The older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, He's losing the father's love because of his goodness. And this is what Keller points out. He says, it's not, that the sins, it's not that sins create the separation, but the pride he has in his moral record. 
It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father. So it's the sin of pride, right? That I've been here, I've worked for you, I've done all that you've commanded. Keller goes on to say, he says, the hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled, but one did so by being very bad and the other by being very good. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. And so I don't want you to miss this point. Jesus is teaching us that neither son loved the father for himself. They didn't love the father because he was their father. They loved the Father because they had selfish desires, and the Father was their way to meet those selfish desires. They were simply after the Father's stuff, simply after their own selfish desire. And so Jesus, in this parable, this is really the only point I have for you today. We're going to take it real slow through this, and this is my point for you. Jesus redefines sin. He defines it as self-seeking through immoralism, which we would all agree on, or moralism, which may sting a little more for us. Defines it as immoralism or moralism. Jesus is saying you can rebel against God by breaking the rules or by keeping the rules. In this parable, Jesus gives us a much deeper concept of sin than any of us would have had had he not said the things he's saying. Most of us think of sin as failing to keep God's commands, of which it most certainly is. But Jesus' definition goes beyond that. You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the laws. If you do that, then somehow you have rights. God owes you answered prayers. God owes you a good life. God owes you a ticket to heaven because you're living morally. You don't need a Savior who pardons you because you've made yourself your own Savior. You see the dangers of moralism. And so this is the attitude of the older brother. He feels like he has a right to tell his father how to handle his younger brother, how to handle the rings, how to handle the robe, how to handle the cattle. And so in the same way, religious people live very moral lives. Now let's not, please, hear the words religious people and immediately start thinking of someone else. Let's allow this to rest on our hearts and on our minds, amen? Knowing that all of us are in danger of becoming a religious person in the sense that we're trying to achieve moralism. And so religious people live very moral lives, but their goal is to control God, to put him in a position where he owes them something. And so you hear this all the time when we begin to ask things like, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, one, we're assuming that there's a such thing as a good person, which is not true. The second thing we're assuming is that somehow by being good or moralistic is what people are really saying, that somehow God owes us something. Also not true. Also not true. Amen? God has given us all that he would give and did not owe. And so if you, like the older brother, believe that God ought to bless you 
and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. It's also Keller's quote, not mine. Both the brothers are using the fathers to get what they desired. They believe that the father's wealth would be their fulfillment, and so they're doing whatever they thought was necessary to have that, to have what they desired. And so older brothers, as Keller says, obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight in him. So so what we see then is that moral people can be avoiding Jesus as much as the younger brothers who say they don't believe in God, and that is how Jesus breaks the mold of our understanding of sin. This is how he's redefining sin for us because mostly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of moral rules. But Jesus shows us that a man who hasn't broken hardly any rules in his life can be just as spiritually lost as the immoral person. Why? Keller says, because sin is not just breaking the rules, it is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. Just as each son sought to displace the authority of the father in his own life, there are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting up your own course, and one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. Jesus doesn't divide the world into good guys and bad guys like we do. There's no such thing as a moral and an immoral group of people a self-discovery, and a moralistic group of people, liberals and conservatives. I mean, this is not the way God sees people. This is not the way Jesus sees people. He shows us that all of us are on a pilgrimage of self-salvation, that all of us are into using God and or others to get the power and control for ourselves. And we do it uh, differently from one another. Hence the divide. And so this means that Jesus' message, the message that we call the gospel, is an entirely different spirituality. Keller describes it this way. He says, the gospel is not religion or, or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism. It is something else altogether. The gospel is distinct from the other two approaches, in its view, in the view of the gospel, in the view of God, in the view of Jesus as he's talking to these people, everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. The older brothers would say, the good people are in and the bad people are out. And the younger brothers want to say, the open-minded people are in and the bigoted are out. But Jesus says in Luke 18 that the humble are in and the proud are out. The people who confess they aren't good are moving towards God because the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. Amen? And so the people who think they're just fine are actually moving away from God. The Lord cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud, as we see in Psalm 138. And so although the sons are both wrong and both loved, the story does not end on the same note for each. So why does Jesus construct the story so that no one, 
uh, sorry, so that one of them is saved, restored to a right relationship with the Father, and one of them is not, at least not before the story ends. Well, it may be that Jesus is trying to say that while uh, both forms of the self-salvation project are equally wrong, each one is not equally dangerous. One of the ironies of the parable is now revealed here at the end. The younger son's sin against the father was obvious, right? He left the father literally, physically, and morally. But the older son, he stayed home. But even being at home, he was actually more distant and alienated from the father than his brother because he was blind to his true condition. He would have been horribly horribly offended at the suggestion that he was rebelling against the Father's authority and love. But the truth is, he was deeply. Because the older brothers are more uh, blind to what is going on in their hearts and in their minds and in their souls, being an older brother, Pharisee type, is a more spiritually desperate condition to which they would respond, how dare you say that? Their relationship with God isn't right. And so they would respond, well, I'm there every time the church doors are open. Every time the doors are open, I'm there. Anytime there's a gathering, I'm there. I'll pray and read my Bibles. And Jesus says, in effect, that doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter, but he's saying that's not the point. The point is not moralistic behavior. And we've made moralistic behavior our God. It is our idol. That we would be seen as moralistic in the way that we live. It would be seen as good in the eyes of our peers. And what we've done is we've created an unbearable pressure on younger brothers. This idea goes totally against the gospel And it flies in the face of this younger brother's mentality of self-serving, of self-seeking. And so he goes out on a warpath, a rampage in his life, and does whatever his heart desires. All in rebellion against moralism. And so most of us know the truth. The truth is the younger brother never experienced Jesus. The truth is also that the older brother has not experienced Jesus either. When we begin to place moralistic demands on people with no basis in the gospel, we're not even starting with the gospel, we're just saying you need to clean up here, you need to do this or that, then what we're doing is sinful. It's wrong. And it's tearing people down. And so the same thing happens when we engage the world in conversation. The same thing happens when we engage the world in the things that we say or the stances that we take. We will take open stances which may be rooted in biblical truths, but we'll take these bold stances on things without ever engaging in a conversation. And what it comes across as is moralism to the person who doesn't believe. I've seen this in church my entire life. I've seen this with people who call themselves believers. And then one day, uh, so sometimes your life is marked by both. Maybe you grow up very moralistic. You grow up living in the truth. And then 
at some point in your life, you decide, that's not for me. I'd rather be about self-discovery. So one of the things that may be true there is that Jesus never had that person's heart at any time in their life. They had the appearance of godliness without the truth of godliness in their heart. They identified as Christian because they went to church. They identified as a Christian because somebody invited them down to repeat a prayer after them and get baptized. I'm not saying that if you've done that, that you're not saved. I'm just saying it's dangerous to do that. It's dangerous to equate that to salvation all the time. So salvation is very... The the thing that's clear about salvation is that it will always bear fruit. There will always be fruit to our salvation. Amen? There's always going to be marks in your life, fruit of the Spirit in your life, that you are saved. It doesn't mean you won't uh, rebel. It doesn't mean that you won't backslide, as we call it, in the church. It doesn't mean that those things won't happen to you. It just means that when they do, at some point... Jesus is going to wake you up. You'll begin to see the error of your way, and you'll come crawling back gladly. Amen? And so that's my prayer for anyone who has backslidden. It's not that... My prayer is that the Lord would arrest their heart, arrest their mind and their soul so that they cannot leave His grace. Amen? And the other thing is is that my prayer is that he would wake them up if they are truly unsaved. He would wake up their mind that they'd stop running to and self-discovery, amen, towards this younger brother mentality. And so what Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees here, what he's teaching to the tax collectors and sinners is something that would have never been taught before. It would have blown everyone's mind that was in attendance that day that there's not a right and a wrong, that all are wrong, all are loved, and all are called to recognize this and change. It would have blown the mind of the Pharisees, but it also would have blown the mind of those sinners because they would have thought that somehow, some way, they had already blown it, that there was no way God would welcome them into his family. They weren't good enough. They didn't grow up in a Jewish, a traditional Jewish home where they were learning these things. For whatever reason, they had gone down a different road. And what we see here is that the Father is showing prodigal grace to both groups. Amen? And so, how are... It's my question for application for us today. How are the bigots and open-minded, the moral and immoral, the self-righteous and unrighteous, the older brothers and the younger brothers going to be reconciled? It will only be through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will only be through this understanding that on our own, apart from God, we are all wrong, we are all loved, we are all called to recognize this and change. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?